But this year we've been bombarded, haven't we, with TV interviews, with election debates, with head-to-heads between party leaders. Um, I'm sure most, some of you have seen some of those. And I find myself asking the question, what's the election got to do with Christmas? <laughs> and spoiling it. <laughs> but then as I thought a bit more deeply, I realized there's a better question. What, what does Christmas have to do with the election? What does Christmas have to do with the important decisions that we actually have to make about our lives, about this nation? Or is Christmas just a thing that we just do once a year and it's just in isolation and we celebrate the birth of Christ and, and it's got its nice little tradition and then we pack it all away again. We get it all out for Christmas time. Then we pack it all away again and get back on with our ordinary lives. But this time, we've, we're actually forced to, to ask the question, aren't we? What does it have to do with the election? What does it have to do with government? What does it have to do with politics? What does it have to do with our daily lives. Now, just to, to let you know, I'm not gonna, this is, this is, I'm not gonna do a political rant. I'm not gonna let my political views be known. Uh, I'm, to be honest, completely conflicted, uh, about, about the whole thing. Um, but what I wanna do today is just give some perspective on how it is that we can approach such a thing as an election and what Christmas might have to say about it. Does it make a real difference in our lives? Every day? Or is it simply something we unpack one time of year and pack away again? Let's pray together. Father, we just pray, Lord, that as we come around your word together, Lord, that you would you bring insight into our lives. You'd shine light on the decisions that we have to make. You would speak to us and you would guide us and lead us. Lord, we need your help. We need you to speak. So, Lord, we open ourselves up to that, and we accept your word in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. So, what has Christmas got to do with the election? A lot of the kind of promises that are made around election time are are something along the lines of, vote for me and I'll sort this old mess out. Vote vote for us and we'll we'll give you the future that you deserve. We'll give you the hope that you deserve. We'll, we'll, We'll get this done, whatever this might be. And the desire for someone to come and sort our mess out is not new. 700 years before Jesus was born, the prophet Isaiah spoke God's words to a people who were in more despair than either you or me. It was written to a people who had been, they disobeyed God and they had been oppressed by enemies around them. War was on its way. Isaiah was saying, look, the king of Assyria is coming. King Ahaz had turned his back on God, and the people of Israel were going to be subjected to war. It's a war they couldn't win. An army was on its way, and the result would be death and exile, and for those who left, the land would be ruined and poverty would await. Kind of sounds like a no-deal Brexit, doesn't it? No hope, no future, just darkness. There are people all around the world, aren't there, that experience that kind, of, that kind of darkness, that kind of hopelessness. And we ask the question, where's the hope going to come from? And the question we ask at this time, this week, when we go to those ballot boxes is, which one of these candidates is going to give us the hope that we desire? Which one of these parties is going to give us the, the future that we 
feel we deserve or the future that we would like? Who is going to sort this mess out? And the more we scrutinize people, the more we scrutinize policies and parties, we lower our expectations, don't we, about what might be achieved. And it becomes the phrase is the least worst option. That's not very hopeful, is it? And yet, 700 years before Jesus, a people who are walking in darkness, a people who were hopeless, were sent a prophet called Isaiah. And Isaiah spoke God's words to them and gave them a vision of the future that gave them hope. This is what we're going to look at today then, Isaiah chapter 9, verse 1. But there will be no gloom For her who was in distress. Formerly he brought contempt to the region of Zebulun and the region of Naphtali. But in the future he will have made glorious the way of the sea. The territory beyond the Jordan. Galilee of the nations. Now Zebulun and Naphtali were the places on the the periphery of of Israel. And they were the the places hardest hit and hit first. In, in the war and it, by the Assyrian king, they lost their territories first. And God says to them, you who, were, who lost it first, you're going to be, you're going to have it restored. You're going to have, you're going to be seen as a glorious way. The places that were most downtrodden are going to be lifted up the highest, is saying. That's pretty hopeful, isn't it? Think about the things that you've lost. Think about the ways that you've, you've been in need the ways you feel like perhaps you, you have borne the brunt of the challenges. Perhaps you've carried more than you feel the lion's share, more than the load that you, you look around and you think, they've, they've got it better than me. Well, Isaiah says to those people, your future will be made glorious. Galilee of the nations and Galilee is where Jesus started his ministry. They were the first to see, weren't they, the ministry of Jesus. But as I, in, in verse 2 it says, People who walked in darkness have seen a great light. For those living in a deep darkness, a light has shined upon them. God will promise a light. If you're walking around in darkness and you can't see the way ahead and you, you, you worry that you're going to stumble and you're looking at the future and you think, I just don't know what's going to happen... God says to those people, the future is bright. That's good to hear, isn't it? The future is bright. Does anybody believe that? Mm. Is anybody persuaded when a politician says, the future is bright with us? You kind of go, kind of, maybe, I don't know, perhaps. We're not convinced, are we? And yet God brings his word to a people who are walking in darkness and says, look, the future is bright. And you start to think, oh, this is a vision I can get behind. I wonder what he has to say. Verse 3, as you keep on going, you have increased the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice in your presence as they rejoice at the harvest, as they are glad when they're dividing the spoils of war. This is, this is not simply it's going to be like it used to be. This is it's going to be even better than it used to be. Rejoice. Joy on the streets. Of the, of the towns rejoicing at the harvest. Wow, the impact and consequences of, of whatever it is that God is promising will increase our joy, will increase their joy, the people of God, but then it expands out to the whole world. In harvest and victory against those who oppress them. That's a great, that's a great promise for a politician to make, isn't it? You'll, you'll be happy again. But they don't say that, do they? 
Because that's not within their grasp. It's not within their power to give that. But God is saying, there'll be joy. There'll be joy in the streets as on the day of a harvest, as on the day of victory. That is what is coming. That is what the future looks like. And you start to think, well, for a people who are walking in darkness, this really is a great light, isn't it? And the consequences will be on the whole nation. It won't simply be just the few who benefit from this. It will be for all. Heard that phrase a few times as well in the last few weeks. Verse 4, now as the yoke that has been this burden and the bar laid on his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken it as on the day of Midian. What's this saying? As, as Isaiah is painting this picture of a future, he's saying, not only will you be happy and you'll be joyful, not only will this darkness give way to light, not only will those who have suffered the most be the first to benefit, whatever is oppressed upon you, whatever is pushing you down, will be removed. And it says, as on the day of Midian. Now that's talking about the Midianites. Now can anyone remember who, which judge God raised up to, to rescue the people of God from the Midianites? Gideon. Very good. So Gideon was just, he was just this normal guy. He was, in fact, the weakest guy around, wasn't he? He was the weakest man, the weakest clan, and he was hiding away and he was terrified. But God spoke to him and said, arise, mighty man of valor. I've got a job for you to do. And he filled him with the Holy Spirit. And God delivered them from the Midianites. And the Midianites were like grasshoppers. They would just swoop in and they would, they would just take all of the harvest. They'd bring all their animals and they'd bring all, their, all the people and they would just completely decimate the land leaving nothing left. Can you imagine living in a place like that, where people would just come in and they'd just take everything and then go and leave you with nothing? And Isaiah is saying it's going to be like that day when Gideon set the people free in the power of God from the Midianites. You will have whatever is oppressing you, whatever is pushing you down will be released, will be set free. I wonder what things you feel that perhaps are pushing you down right now. Where do you feel the pressure? Maybe you feel the pressure in, in finances. That might be an area. You just feel the worry. God's going to remove the worry. Maybe you feel uncertainty about the future. God's going to remove the worry about uncertainty. Maybe you feel oppressed by an addiction or, or something in your past that is just kind of like keeps on coming back. God's going to remove the oppression of that. Maybe it's, maybe it's something oppressive. Maybe it's a problem in your marriage or maybe it's a problem in your family. God is going to remove the oppression as on that day where they rejoiced that God had set them free. And you know, the, the odds were against them, weren't they? God kept whittling down the army, if you remember. They'd, and it was, there's too many of you who are going to beat the Midianites. You're going to think you did this. And so they're left with just 300 men to defeat a, a, a myriad of Midianites. You might feel that The odds are stacked against you. But Isaiah says, there's hope. There's hope. This is is what the future is going to be like. You're going to be set free from everything that oppresses you, from everything that holds you down, that pushes you down, that depresses you. You're going to be set free. What a great vision this is. Move on. The next verse, it says, For every boot of the trampling soldier in battle tumult, that's a good old word, isn't it? And every garment rolled in blood will be used for burning as fuel for fire. 
What's that saying? It's saying like all the remnants of the battles that you faced, all the remnants of the things that have been, that, that remind you of how hard it's been, it's as if they were going to be gathered up and you're going to forget about them. They're going to be burned. They're going to be gone. You're not going to be constantly reminded of the things that you've lost. This future hope is a completely clean slate, a fresh start. A new beginning. Wouldn't we all love to have such a thing? Isn't that what people cry out for today? Isn't, isn't this exactly what people are looking for? A fresh start. A way to just kind of somehow click the reset button and, and start again. Edit, undo. Well... Isaiah is painting a vision for the future. It's a bit like Martin Luther's, Martin Luther King's dream, isn't it? I have a dream. What's this dream? It's a dream where the whole country will be taken from darkness into light, justice for all, freedom for those who are oppressed, a nation we can be proud of, joy returning in the streets, everything that oppresses you being thrown off, every reminder of the pain that you've endured wiped away, a fresh start for everyone. That sounds good, doesn't it? Does that sound good to you? It sounds good to me. Isn't that what we all deep down inside long for? And Isaiah holds it out as a hope. But is it just, is it just wishful thinking? It, will it be delivered? Will it ever happen? Or is it just a dream? How can we trust that God is going to keep his word? On this. And Isaiah is ready with the answer. And the answer is not a a new system of government. It's not capitalism versus socialism. It's not a theory. It's a person. Get ready. This is how it's going to be delivered, this hope. Next verse. For, because. Here's the reason for the hope. For. To us, a child is born. To us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Seven years, 700 years before the birth of Jesus, Isaiah casts a vision for a future hope, and it's based upon a child being born, pointing to the Messiah, God's chosen King, who will set the people of God free and has the right to rule. This phrase, the government will be upon his shoulders, always confused me a little bit. It kind of made me think like the government were kind of like, they'll be chasing him around trying to push him down as if they're kind of there oppressing him. But government on his shoulders simply means that the weight of responsibility to government will be on him. Government was like a yoke. It was described as a yoke that the government wore. They took the yoke of government, the responsibility, the burden And Jesus, this is saying that the one who is coming, he will bring about this future. He will lead you. He will rule. He will govern. Whatever governments might exist, there is a higher throne. There is a higher ruler. There is one above them all. And he will deliver what he promises. When we look at the candidates for prime minister, we instantly see the, the failings of those who would bear the burden of responsibility. And we wonder, who is, who is the most qualified? 
Who is the most competent? Who is most likely to deliver what they promise? But in these few verses, Isaiah spells out the, 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 the qualifications of Jesus to be the one who should rule our lives. This child that would be born 700 years later, he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. I'm just going to go through quickly each one of those. They're kind of in doubles, okay? Wonderful Counselor. This is not the name that this, that this child would actually bear. It's not like... This is not what you will call him. This is a description of the kind of person he will be. Okay, this is a name that describes who he will be. The first is wonderful counselor. Wonderful counselor means miraculous, a kind of a miraculous guide or a supernatural planner. One who can see things coming because he is divine, because he is miraculous. He will guide with wisdom. He will guide with truth. It's often said that um, hindsight is twenty twenty, isn't it? When we look back, we see things absolutely clearly. But when we, when we look ahead, we see all a bit of a blur. And it's as if we kind of walk through life backwards. This is a picture that the, kind of the, he, the Hebrews had of walking through life. Sometimes we, we think we walk through life forwards, and we kind of, we're looking ahead, and we're anticipating what's going to come, and we're getting ourselves ready. But the reality is that we actually walk through life backwards. We only ever see, really, what has just happened. We like to think that we look forward. We like to think we can anticipate whatever happens. We like to think we can plan. But our plans are speculation. There might be good guesses. There might be be wisdom in those plans. But ultimately, we walk through life backwards. We see what happens just as it happened. And we have 20-20 vision that way but not that way. What this is saying is that the one that God will send is the only one that can actually see forward. Jesus is the only one who can see things before they happen. He knew exactly where he was going, didn't he? He knew exactly where, you know, you, you know when Jesus went and said, okay, you go into the, go into the town, you're going to find a guy who's got a cult, he's going to... Sit, He's telling him, I need it, I'm going to need it. And he knows exactly what, I'm going to be betrayed. He knew that was coming. I'm going to the cross. He knew that was coming. He knew exactly where he was going. He anticipated everything. And he, he led the disciples there. And in the same way, God wants to be that wonderful counselor for us. And Jesus embodies that completely. Tony Blair said famously, I don't make predictions. And I never will. So I think it's quite ironic because I never will is a prediction, but there we are. Okay. But in contrast, Isaiah promises a leader who will see everything coming. He, we don't know what's happening. We don't know what's going to happen. Politicians don't know what's going to happen. We all walk through life backwards, just only just, just glimpsing it as it just passes us by. But only God can see what is happening in the future. That is why we must constantly keep looking to him. Relying on him, depending on him, seeking his wisdom, his leading, his guiding. This is how God is going to bring us into this future that he has promised. Is as we follow the only one who walks forwards. We take his hand and he leads us. And he'll keep on leading us. And we keep looking to him and trusting in him. Because none of us can prepare enough for the future. 
None of us can gather enough principles to, to see us through unexpected times. But there is one who is a wonderful counselor, and he will lead us. Second thing is that he's a mighty God. A mighty God. We see that wonderful counselor, mighty God. This is not simply just talking about the fact that he is God, but describing someone who, who does div- is a divine hero. You know, it's not some, simply that, that God is a great planner and he knows the plan and so you should probably follow him. It's also that he has worked on your behalf. He has sacrificed on your behalf. He has done great deeds. He will be a mighty hero. As on the, as on the day of Midian, we've heard about, about Gideon. He'll be like Gideon, but better. When someone does a, I don't know, have you ever thought, of, has anyone ever done a heroic act for you? Perhaps somebody has kind of sacrificed their time, cancelled the meeting so they could be with you, or they've, or, they've, or they've given up something so that you can have it, or they've, it might simply be that they've, they've, sat, they've stood up and let you have their seat. All these little things that we do, what do they show? They show that we're putting someone else above ourselves. When someone is prepared to make a sacrifice for you, to do something heroic for you, it's not simply that you realize they're qualified to lead. You now want to follow them. You want to follow them because they've shown their love for you. They've shown their, that, they, that they're willing to sacrifice for you. They've, they've shown that they can be trusted. When Jesus came, he did the most mighty acts of all, didn't he? From, from being born of a virgin, turning water into wine, healing the sick, making the blind see, the lame walk, the deaf hear, he did it all. He was miraculous. And then he did the most heroic thing of all, didn't he? He traded places with us on that cross. The one person in the world who did not deserve it traded places with us. See, this wonderful future that Isaiah paints comes through the mighty acts of a divine hero called Jesus, whose mighty act was to go to that cross and to make it possible for us to be forgiven and to know God personally. Isaiah looks ahead and he sees one who will come, a child who will be born, and he will grow up to become the wonderful counselor and the mighty God, a a divine hero, but more than that, an everlasting father. Whether either Boris Johnson or Jeremy Corbyn become prime minister, um, while they may be the leader of this country, the kind of relationship they have with us is going to be fairly distant some of, some of you are hoping so. Some of you are hoping that it will be a very distant relationship and won't get too personal. Well, we're not going to know them personally. They're, and that's part of the problem, isn't it? We often feel disconnected from those who rule, from those who make the decisions. In contrast to that, Isaiah says that the one who God promises, who's going to bring about this great future, will be an everlasting father. A father, a parent. There's only two people in the world that can call me father. Usually when my daughter calls me father, it's because she wants something. She has this way, father? I said, she doesn't call me that any other time. She's capitalizing on kind of my uh, posh southern accent and trying to sound uh, appealing. Father, what is it you want, darling? But there's only two people in the world that can call me dad. My kids. That relationship is unique. It's uniquely accessible. They, they can call me any time. They can interrupt any meeting. You know, 
If, if, if one of them was upset and Sarah wasn't here, they'd be stood by my side while I'm preaching, and I'd be totally happy with that. They know that I'm a safe person. That is the kind of relationship God wants to have with us. In fact, he defines himself everlasting father. You're only a father if you've got children. And so God chooses to define himself as not simply this distant leader, but as a personal God. Everlasting father. He wants to be your father. And Jesus came and personified that for us because he said, look, I'm the way to the father. In fact, if you've seen me, you've seen the father. I and the father are one. That's not to separate father and son as if they're completely just the same. They're different. But Jesus says, I've come to embody this. You're going to see what the Father is like by looking at me, and I will lead you to come and meet my dad, and you'll join the family too. See, this promise given to Isaiah is of a deep relationship of dependence that will come as we come to know a person, as we come to know Jesus. And we will know God as an everlasting Father. Doesn't that make you trust him all the more? If you, if you know that someone's got time for you, if you know that somebody knows you and they're not distant but they're close, if you know that somebody wants to be in relationship with you and cares about you, you know that their heart is in the right place, don't you? you you'll trust them even though you don't always understand why they're doing what they're doing. Sometimes, you'll, sometimes as a dad, I have to say, listen, you're going to have to just trust me. You're going to have to just take my word for it. I, I, I really want to explain it to you, but you're not going to quite understand this right now. You might do as you grow up a little bit. And in the same way, sometimes God leads us in life, doesn't he, through seasons where we just don't understand what's going on. And, and as if God says, listen, I can't quite explain it to you right now, but you, you will understand. What you need to know is that I am your everlasting Father. I'm with you and I love you. See, God doesn't just want to lead us into a great future and then just set us off and say, off you go. He wants us to be with him. It's about a relationship. This is something that politics just simply cannot do. This is, this is something that no politician can offer anyone. Only God can be an everlasting father to us. And so Jesus came to fulfill that and make that possible. But finally, Prince of Peace the next verse kind of expands on what this Prince of Peace will, will be. Verse 7, of the growth of his government and peace, there will be no end. Just imagine it. Imagine like um, a, a stone thrown into a pond, and you get the splash, but then it just ripples out and ripples it out and ripples out and just keeps on going, keeps on going, keeps on going. It's as if when this, this child is born, this son is given, it, it, it's, it's, it's the stone dropping into the pond, and the impacts just keep on going and keep on going. And he is the prince of peace. His government and the peace will be no end. The growth, it will just keep on growing. He will rule over his kingdom, sitting on the throne of David to establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness. So it all begins with Israel. It all begins with the promises made to Israel. But then it is expanded out to the rest of the world. From this time and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord, of the heavenly armies, will accomplish this. Peace, justice, hope, 
joy. All these things, aren't they the things that we long for and that we hope for? And we know deep down inside that this is, this is what everybody hopes for. And we try and lay the burden on men to fulfill and women to fulfill what only God can fulfill. You see, there is a higher throne. There is a greater promise. There is a government above the government. And Jesus has come. And he is on his throne. And so our task, as we think about the future... As we, as we think about how we can bring about the kind of change that we want to see, that we believe God wants to see, is we, we pray the kind of prayer that God wants us to pray. What did he teach us to pray? Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom, your rule, your government come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And we see the dependence. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our trespasses. As we forgive those who trespass against us, it's going to ripple out into our relationships. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For thine is the kingdom, the power and the glory. Forever and ever. Amen. And so as we think about what does Christmas have to do with with politics, what does it have to do with the election It's this, that our hope is not in politics, and our hope is not in the election. Our hope is in God. And as we anchor our hopes in Jesus, as we anchor our hopes in in the one that God has promised, and we we trust in what he has done when he came and he lived the life that, that, that we should have lived, and he died the death we should have died, and he opened up the way for us to know what it means for the kingdom to come. And in this world, there's, we're going to see God's kingdom come more and more, but there'll come a time when it comes in full. There'll come a time when, when all the tears will be wiped away, when God will make the world new. In the meantime, we pray, Lord, let your kingdom come and your will be done. And we surrender every decision to the one who is on the throne. And whatever our political persuasions and our political leanings and who it is that we prefer, we surrender it all to the higher king. And we say, Lord, grant us that wisdom. Lord, lead us forward because only you see the way forward. Lord, we pray that people in power will look to you because only you can guide them. And we look to you also and we say, Lord, let your will be done. I'm not here to tell you how to vote. I'm not here to tell you what I think about politics, but I really do believe that God wants each one of us to see that he is above it all. And our most, the most powerful thing we can do is say, Lord, we look to you. Let your will be done. And to seek him with all our hearts. And the amazing thing that is that when Jesus came this is, what, this is what the angels sang, glory to God in the highest, peace on earth and goodwill to all men. As we glorify God, as we look to him, it will ripple out into our relationships, goodwill to all people. And what does it say in Isaiah at the end there? The zeal of the Lord of the heavenly armies will accomplish this. So I wonder what you're hoping for. I don't know how you're going to vote. I don't need to know. I don't want to know. 
But will you do this? Will you surrender it to God? Will you recognize that the greatest hope that we have is in Jesus? That you won't place that hope as a heavy yoke upon people who are just people? That we would look to God to do what only God can do? And that we would pray that those who are in power and those who have responsibility will bear it in such a way that honors God and that they will look to him too. And I think that is our job as Christians, is to pray for the people who take those responsibilities, that they would do so humbly with a fear of God, seeking his wisdom. Let's pray together. We're going to sing a song that just kind of encapsulates a lot of what we've just been saying. But we can pray and put our hope in God together. So let's pray. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. And those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. You have enlarged the nation and increased their joy. They rejoice before you as people rejoice at a harvest, as warriors rejoice when dividing the plunder. For as in the day of Midian's defeat, you have shattered the yoke that burdens them, the bar across their shoulders, the rod of the oppressor. Every warrior's boot used in battle and every garment rolled in blood will be destined for burning, will be fuel for the fire. For because of this, unto us a child is born, to us a son is given unto And the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the greatness of his government and peace there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. Thank you, God, that our hope is not in man not in people but our hope is in you the son of man the son of God 